Torah is in five books, as everybody knows. And one of the things that I will suggest to you is that the five books of the Torah correspond to the five steps of salvation. The first book is obviously Genesis. That's when God introduces the background. He tells us how we got into this mess. He explains to us what the problem is. He explains the list of characters, and he starts to put into place the mechanism that he has got to repair it. And that's when, of course, depending on whether you're a Calvinist or not, God finds you or you find him. You recognize that he's God and you're not. And that's the beginning of a relationship that he wants to have with you. The next book is Exodus. The book of Exodus is where God reaches into the world by his sovereign grace without any help from you and saves you. So the only thing that Israel has to do in the book of Exodus is agree. They have no power to save themselves. It is the grace of God entirely and the action of God entirely that affects their salvation. Their only part in that process is they have to agree to the process and when God says it's time to come, they have to come out. But other than that, It's entirely a work of God. And in that process, by the way, he takes you to Sinai and he gives you his Torah. The sequence of events is God saves you. God takes you through the waters of baptism. God brings you up on the other side and then God gives you the Torah. So the Torah is something that is given to people who are already saved. It is not a vehicle for salvation. And just as I said, when God decides to take you out of Egypt, that is something that he does by his grace alone without any help from you. And so it doesn't have anything to do with your following the Torah. It doesn't have anything to do with your being an exceptionally good person. It doesn't have anything to do with you being blonde-haired and blue-eyed. It has to do with he has made you an offer and you have decided to accept. He takes you then into... Sinai after he takes you through the baptism and gives you the Torah. And of course the Torah is his set of instructions on how to live in community in his presence. Next thing is the book of Leviticus and that's where he gives you instructions on how to live in his presence safely and how to relate to him. So he is the one who gets to decide how he wants to be worshipped. All sorts of people have these ideas of, gee, my heart is really full and I want to worship God this way. And if the way you want to worship God is not the way God wants to be worshipped, you are at least wasting your time. And it could be much worse than that. So you have, for example, in the book of Numbers, the case of Nadab and Avihu, who get their hearts just all full and they rush in there and they want to worship God in their own way and they die. So the idea of Leviticus is he's God, you're not. He's the one who gets to decide how he wants to be worshipped. And he tells you that. And he also tells you how he can live in the middle of your community and you can continue to be safe. That's the things with the Mishkan and the instructions for the priest on how to come in and all that kind of stuff. So that's Leviticus. Numbers is where he takes you into the wilderness and woos you. Because what he does is he gets you out of the world and away from all of the distractions and he speaks to you in the wilderness. 
Another way to say it is that's where he gets Egypt out of you. They go into the wilderness and a whole lot of them don't survive because they cannot bring themselves to trust God. At the end of the day, they don't survive. And the next generation is the one that goes through. So the whole purpose of Numbers is going into the wilderness where the only thing that you can hear is the voice of God because he's the only one there. You don't have your cell phone and you don't have your telephone and you don't have any of that stuff. You simply have God in you. And that's where he speaks to you. He speaks to your heart. And then the final stage is Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy are your final set of instructions before you leave this special place, the wilderness, where it's just you and God, and you go back into the world. So what they are is where God takes you, picks you up, dusts you off, and says, all right, go get them, tiger. Pats you on the butt and sends you off into the world. And that's what Deuteronomy is. The final set of instructions before you go out and take on the world. So what I will suggest to you is that the Torah is really all you need to understand for salvation. What the Gospels are is the testimony that God has been faithful to his word and he has done everything that he said in prophecy, but David and Abraham and Moses and Paul and everybody else all get saved the same way you get saved. There's only one way to get saved, and that's trusting in God. David got saved that way. Abraham got saved that way. Moses got saved that way. You get saved that way. It's the same from the beginning to the end of the book. There is no double plan. And what the the Gospels do is show you how God sends his son to be sacrificed so that the blood that his son sheds will cover the things that are separating you from God. And oh, by the way, the blood of Yeshua covers David, it covers Abraham, it covers everybody. Because that's why he took his blood and he shed it on the altar in heaven. Book of Hebrews, he came before God in heaven with his own blood, and it's a venue and an altar where he alone is authorized to sacrifice. Remember there's three altars, three orders of priesthood, three venues. There is the altar that we're reading about today in the tabernacle. That venue is authorized to be served by the priests according to the order of Aaron. Nobody else. And the book of Hebrews says that Yeshua is not authorized to sacrifice there, doesn't it? The book of Hebrews says that Yeshua isn't a priest according to that order. He wouldn't be authorized to sacrifice because he's not a priest according to the order of Aaron. He is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek which is a completely different order. And I personally believe that that order of priesthood has only one member, and that's Yeshua. And he's authorized to sacrifice at the altar in heaven of which the earthly altar is a copy. So when he sacrifices and brings his blood to that altar, which is in heaven, which is outside of the created order, which is outside of time, the blood that he sheds there covers all sin. And that's what the scripture says, all sin. So it covers David's sins, it covers Abraham's sins, it covers Moses' sins, it covers Aaron's sins, it covers your sins. Now the next question is, are you going to accept that gift? He makes the sacrifice, he does everything that's necessary for your salvation, 
by his own power, by his own will, and he doesn't need your help at all, thank you. Your job then becomes, will I accept it? When he calls me, will I come out of Egypt and accept the blood that he has shed and go through the waters of baptism and come up on the other side and accept his Torah as my rule for living and then follow him into the wilderness where he will talk to me and then when he finally has gotten me where he wants me to be, will I then go forward into the world in to Deuteronomy and do the things he's got for me to do? For those of you who have been around here with me for 16 years, you've probably heard it 15 times, but it's good to hear every now and then. And one of the reasons it's good to hear is many of you all are from mixed families. you got families that's, what is this stuff you're doing? And it's very comforting for us to know that as much time as we spend in the Torah, literally everything you need to understand is in the Torah. I'm not at all speaking down about the gospel, but that's the testimony that the stuff that he said he was going to do in the Torah, he is faithful and he's done it. So for those of you who are mixed families and they say, why are you spending all this time in that Old Testament stuff? You can explain to them that that Old Testament stuff has got it all. And the better you understand the beginning of the book, the richer the end of the book becomes. Right. I was reading Jonathan Sachs last night who at the moment is one of my two favorite rabbis. And the thing about Pekude, where we are today, is it's normally part of a double Torah portion. So you normally have the last two Torah portions read in a chunk. But since we're in a 13-month year this year, they take those double Torah portions and they spread them out so that the double portions are read one at a time as opposed to all on one Shabbat. And since this is a 13-month year, Pekude is read by itself. Now, one of the things about this last couple of chapters where you're reading blueprints and you're reading construction diagrams, it can be dry. But there's a passage in there that Jonathan Sachs keyed off of, and I'm going to take some of his ideas and some of my own. I'll try and sort of keep track of which is which. One of the things about the ark is when the staves are put in, they never come out. So it is the case that even when the ark has parked, which is to say it's not going anywhere, the staves stay in it. The staves come out of everything else. So when you park the altar, you pull the staves. When you park the table of showbread, you pull the staves. So everything that is parked when you're stopped gets its stave pulled out except the ark. The staves stay in the ark forever. And Sachs's comment was, Judaism is a religion of movement. And whenever you think that you have reached your goal, that's an indication that you have lost your way. If you are tempted to sit back and fold your hands over your tummy, and say, God, you've got me where you want me, then you've lost your way. Because the ark is always ready to move. The ark, by the way it's set up, is not intended ever to be stationary. 
And by the way, it's not an accident that the first tabernacle is a tent, which is portable. Now, we tend to think of that in terms of, gee, they were in the desert, and gee, they were traveling, so of course they had to have a tent. We tend to think of it in terms of necessity. I prefer to think of it in terms of symbols. The message there is the people of God and the ark of God that always goes with them are always mobile. And even when they park in the land of Israel, God says specifically, and I will read it to you so I don't get it wrong, Leviticus 25 and verse 33. This is God speaking. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, God's. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. So even when Israel is in the land that has been promised to them, they are still strangers and sojourners. You say, I read Sachs, and then that struck a bunch of chords in me. One of the things that Sachs says is none of the patriarchs have a house. Before you go to Jacob, who built a house, what did he call his house? Sukkot. So the idea is none of the patriarchs had a house. They were always moving. And by the way, Jacob didn't stay in Sukkot very long. He then moved from Sukkot to Shechem and then from Shechem down to Beersheba. So the patriarchs were always moving around in tents. They were nomads. And the thing that struck me, which Sachs would not have mentioned since he's a rabbi, is Yeshua didn't have a house. Matthew, verse 820. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know, when he was a little boy living in Nazareth, I'm sure they had a house since his dad was a carpenter and he had a carpenter shop and all that kind of stuff. But when he began his ministry, you never find that they met in Jesus' house. It isn't in the scripture. They all went back to Yeshua's house and knocked back a beer and talked about whatever. Yeshua doesn't have a house, or at least not in the Gospels. He's always moving. What I'm suggesting to you is the scriptures are consistent from Torah to Gospel. This idea that the people of God don't settle down. That's not the right way to say it. Settling down has a good connotation. Somebody settled down. That's different than always being ready to move and go where God sends you. You can be settled and stable. The patriarchs were stable. Abraham had great wealth, was able to put together an army on a moment's notice. So he was a very stable man, but he didn't live in one place. He was always ready to move. That takes me to someplace else, which Sachs has no credit for, so anything wrong here is now my problem and not Sachs's problem. This idea, again from Leviticus, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. Who's me? God. He made the universe for us because that's what we needed to live. The tabernacle is a place that is set up for God to inhabit. It is not a place that is hospitable for humans to live in. Hence, you have technical specialists, the Levites, who know how safely to interact with the tabernacle. And if you do it wrong, you die. And the reason you die is not because God is chapped with you. The reason you die is because you came into a place that is not designed for humans to live. You've been through this often enough. You know that 
the high priest, when he goes in to be in front of the ark, has got to take a whole bunch of special precautions before he goes in there. And in every case, it says, you will do this before you come in here, lest you die. And again, it isn't, lest I kill you. The scripture doesn't read, don't do this, or I will kill you. It reads, don't do this, or you will die. Big difference. There are things God can't make. There are things God can't do. He cannot, for example, generate respect for himself without us. God by himself, there's nobody to respect him. There's nobody to love him. So without us, he cannot have either respect or love because that depends on us to exist in order to give it to him. And oh, by the way, you have to have free will in order to give it to him because if you don't have free will, then it's just God talking to himself. This isn't original with me. But the idea is that this is a womb. Much like the womb of a woman really doesn't belong to her. The womb of a woman for a period belongs to the child who's inside of it. That's its purpose for existence. If there were no child inside of it, there is no purpose in having a womb. And in fact, it's one of the great lies of our society. My body belongs to me. Well, not entirely. Once you have admitted another being and started to generate a child, it no longer belongs to you. It now belongs to the child until the child is done with it in nine months. Then you can have it again. This universe that we are in is the same thing. God has created for us a womb, a place where we can be born and grow. God isn't suited to live here, just like you're not suited to live in a womb once you have been born. It's a foreign place to you then. So coming back to this passage of Scripture, now let's, let's talk about it in this sense. I'm back in Leviticus 25:23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, God's. You are strangers and sojourners with me. In other words, this whole creation is temporary. It's a factory. It's a machine. It's a machine that is designed to produce people. Now, let's think about a factory for a minute. Let's think about Toyota plant and wherever Georgia Toyota plant is. A Toyota plant exists for one purpose, to make Toyotas. Once the Toyota has left the factory, is the factory of any importance whatsoever to the Toyota thereafter. Once the car is born out of the factory, it never returns to the factory again. I mean, even on a recall, they don't take them back to the factory. You take them to the local dealer and they put the new widget in it and give it back to you. The car never goes back to the factory. But the point is, once the factory has produced what it's producing, the factory has fulfilled its purposes. And the only reason it has to continue to exist is if it wants to make more. So, you know, the Toyota factory continues to exist because it's going to make a lot more Toyotas. But for that particular Toyota, the factory is no longer of any importance whatsoever. The factory could be destroyed, and that Toyota would be just fine, wouldn't it? So the sky could be rolled up like a scroll, and this creation could be melted down and reformed, and it wouldn't matter any to the ones that made it. And that's why God tells you over and over and over again, don't get attached to the factory. He says, don't be concerned with the things of this world. This world is just the factory. This world is just the thing that is designed to produce people. 
at some point this world is going to cease to exist because God is going to have all the people he wants. And so if you are attached to the factory, when the factory gets destroyed, you're going to be in real difficult circumstance. Whereas if you are a sojourner with God as you're going through this factory with the understanding that he's taking you through this place for purposes of fitting you to be something you're not, then you won't be attached to the factory. You will regard the factory as being the thing that is doing what it's designed to do, but once it's done with me, I will forget it. Coming back now to Lord Sachs, this idea that you're always to be in motion. Because in this factory, to continue my analogy, you're traveling down an assembly line. And if you get off of the assembly line before they give you a bumper, then you're in trouble. The whole point is you've got to keep moving through this world that you're in because there's stuff that you have got to do and God wants you to do in order to make you suitable to live with him for eternity. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.